Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Mike Goodwin, retired. But there's more to Mike's story than that. Mike Goodwin was most recently the president and CEO of the Oregon State University Foundation. He has served as the chair of the Council for Advancement and Support of Education, aka Cases Board. Mike has served in leadership roles at Georgetown University, and we will cover a lot of that today. But first, I just want to say welcome, Mike. Thank you. Hey, great. It's great to be with you, Brent. So thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we've enjoyed understanding about leaders like yourself in the advancement community is the path to get there, right? Very few of us are in middle school saying my dream is to be a leader in philanthropy someday. Um, But inevitably, along the way, something strikes us, we get exposed to it, it leads us down this path. And my understanding is that your upbringing, and I want to take it way back to start, uh, was really under the tutelage of uh, of Coach Goodwin. So tell me about where you were, and uh, and 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 tell me about Coach Goodwin, and just a little bit about that time in your life. Yeah, how'd you learn that? That's really really amazing. So <laughs> my dad was a really uh, well known and highly regarded teacher and coach in uh, in the Seattle area. He worked at the Jesuit school there. And so, as you might expect, I mean, education was sort of the family business. He'd come home at night, and my mom, too, was very involved in it. And so the conversations would be about uh, things that had happened, kids that had, you know, sort of progressed and changed through their work at the school, that kind of thing. So it was just that there was kind of a constant message. And I go back to, as I was thinking about this, the, the case motto of education transforming lives uh, the power of education to transform lives and society. And it was just like, that was every night at our house, just talking about that. And, and then of course, going to football games on the weekend, which were a big deal. So yeah, it was fun. It was a great place to grow up. And so as it came time for you to make your own college choice, tell me about my Goodwin junior year of high school. Uh, what were you thinking through and ultimately what led you to the university of San Francisco? Well, you know, kids didn't look at 50 colleges like so so much happens today. So if you looked at three or four, it was a lot. So in my backyard, the UW was great, Seattle University. But then, you know, the Jesuits sent this slick recruiter into into Seattle prep one night representing the University of San Francisco. He was really good. And, you know, what sold me on that was the chance that I might, uh, it was a chance to get away from home financial aid, but also a chance to play football, which I did for the first year because I certainly wasn't good enough to go to any higher level of competition for that. And my friends and family all like to note that the school dropped football shortly after I I left there. So they're not sure if there's a connection to that or not. But Tell me more about that slick recruiter, because I do feel like it is the kindred spirit of the slick development officers who are listening to this, uh, this show. What is the difference between that experience and fundraising? That's a great question. I mean, there really wasn't much difference. He sort of uh, painted the vision, uh, you know, described the product, sold it, and asked for the order. And, you know, by the end of that evening, after listening to him, I was pretty much ready to sign on for whatever they had to offer. It was just, it was a great presentation. We don't uh, know a lot about the enrollment world at, at Evertrue. Uh, we just haven't had too yeah. much exposure to it. But occasionally we hear this, this kind of narrative of the 
the influential, you know, coach that sold me or that enrollment, yeah. or the admissions officer that sold me on USF in your case. And uh, it does feel like there are, um, you know, it, what is the difference between our, you know, USF's marketing materials were what they were, right? Yeah. The, the school was what it, it was, but the difference was a human being connecting with another human being and it shaped your life. And I think that is really the difference between, right, the, the donations that come in on a giving day and all the ones that don't because it's not quite yeah. enough. And so that's where the yeah. human intervention really can make a difference. No, that, that's really well said, I think, Brent. And, uh, another part of that experience when, when I got that scholarship from USF for the first time, there was something with it that had like a real person's name in it that I, cause I, I didn't have a clue up until that point that there was actually a real person behind the scholarship who was interested enough mm-hmm. in someone like me who they didn't even know to help finance my education. And what that really sunk in and that really, I mean, that was a seed that didn't germinate for many years, as you know, but once it did, it really, it was a powerful, powerful experience. And I think that kind of relates to what you're saying. Well, we're not going to talk age on this podcast, but just to set a little bit of context, when Mike showed up at USF, the number one song on the Billboard charts was California Dreaming by the Mamas and the Papas. So it's fitting that Mike was California Dreaming and made his trip down that way. Um, Tell me about the highlights. It sounds like football was a part of the experience. Um, My understanding is that you studied um, uh, English uh, while you were at USF. At what point uh, did you start thinking about the master's program that you ultimately pursued right after uh, USF? Yeah, I, I studied English. And as I got out of football, I got into the school paper. And after a year or two, there became the editor of that. So that was a pretty formative experience as well. But there was, uh, the USF had a terrific English department. And there were a couple of professors who uh, just really engaged me and really got me interested in that. So I thought, you know, much, much to the chagrin of my parents who wanted me to go into law school or to get an MBA or something like that. And they were actually smarter than I was at that point. I decided to pursue the, the graduate degree. And I, my original intent was to get a doctorate at the University of Washington. But after a couple of years of doing that, I you know, realized that doing the research and the kinds of things that you need to do to be a tenured faculty member, uh, you know, that just wasn't the path that, that was appealing to me. So I decided to cut it off and, and move over to the family business, so to speak, which was teaching at the high school level and, and coaching football and working with their newspaper and that, that sort of thing. So uh, that was sort of the path. But it was, uh, look, we've had a lot of folks who one way or another um, directly move from their undergraduate experience into the advancement world. That was less common, right? The, the professionalization of advancement has occurred uh, in part thanks to your leadership, but it was a different um, environment, I know, at that, at that point. Um, and unlike a lot of our other guests, you actually started your career outside of the philanthropy world. Tell us about um, some of the other uh, areas that you worked in before. Yeah, I think that's a yeah. great point. You, you, you could do things when I was starting out that people can't do today. I mean, so we're just when you look around today, you look around for who has experience when you're hiring someone and you're trying to. So you have to start and you have to get the experience and at whatever level it is. And that just wasn't the case when I started. 
again, not talking about dates or anything like that. But so I, after the teaching for and coaching for a few years, I decided that that wasn't quite it either. Really valued what went on there, but there was just this sort of I wanted to learn more about business and and uh, finance. And I, you know, I had a family, so I couldn't act, go out and get the graduate degree at that point. So I started selling real estate. A friend of mine had a brokerage and talked me into doing that. It was a great experience because I, I learned uh, through that process many of the skills that I later needed in development. You need how to work with prospects, how to work with prospective buyers, how to uh, close a sale when you need to do that or a donation, uh, the finance aspect of it, the legal aspect of it. I mean, those were all there in real estate. And, uh, and that was, you know, who knows, I could have stayed in that career but I, I could tell that that wasn't quite it either. And then, um, you know, people now don't, we've had a lot of inflation going on in the economy now, talk of a recession. And that was kind of going on in 1980, 81, when the Fed raised interest rates from eight to 16% sort of overnight. And that just shut down the real estate uh, business for a year or two. So I was looking at that point for, you know, what else can I do? And this, after a lot of kind of looking into it, saw that there were um, schools out there that needed help at this. And I thought maybe I could transfer the skills that I had to that environment. So kind of a long answer, but that's, that's kind of the path. I'm not sure that we've ever really talked the similarities between uh, real estate and, and yeah. fundraising, you know, sales and fundraising, certainly. But yeah, as yeah. you um, kind of transitioned out of real estate into fundraising, what school was that at? It was at a, a brand new school, uh, independent Catholic high school in uh, the Bellevue area uh, outside, outside of Seattle. It's now moved to, uh, you know, a, a, another part of the east side. And uh, now it's probably 35, 40 year old, years old, a very successful school. But at that point. My, my understanding, and I, I just want to make yeah, sure yeah. that everybody hears this. My understanding is it's in. Sammamish, Washington. And the only reason I know how to pronounce that word is because we stayed on the banks of Lake Sammamish in our <laughs> RV on the trip. So no kidding. Wow. There wow. You go. The state park yeah. then probably. I'm guessing at the state park. It, it, I don't know if it was state park <laughs> yeah. or some sort of really cool city park, yeah. but we were yeah. right on the banks uh, yes. of all, Lake Sammamish. Oh well, it's a beautiful place then, as you saw and know. And and, you know, the east side of Seattle is the, the, where the tech, uh, you know, it's yeah. kind of the Silicon Valley north. So there were tons of people with resources there. Uh, the Nordstrom family was part of our school. So it was just it was a great uh, opportunity to learn how to work with people and develop uh, as a development officer. Tell me a little bit if you think about. Yeah. You know, one, one of the things about the, the real estate world, right, is. Uh, deals move fast, right? It's, uh, it's a 45 day close on what is oftentimes the biggest person purchase in somebody's life. Um, what was it like going from that? I don't know, pace intensity to development where we of course want speed, but you've got to balance speed with lifelong relationships. It's, it's a different dynamic. Did that throw you for a loop or was it a pretty natural transition? No, that, that's a really good question. I think it's a pretty natural transition. I mean, one of the things you that I learned in real estate is patience and that you, you know, people will be ready when they're ready, when they see the house that they want and it's the time that's right for them to buy. And so you can't really, you, ha you have to work with a number of people at, at one time. You can't count on 
just having one sale and seeing that through. And I think that's true in development that you, you, you know, you have sometimes, well, you know, the gifts that we work on take, they're not usually closed in a month or two. It's sometimes two or three years that we're working on these things. So you have to have a number of them that you're working on at the same time, sort of strategically. So I think that was a really good lesson from working in the commercial market. And leading the team in the sort of small Catholic school, independent mm-hmm. school environment. Um, a lot of times folks that work in that independent school environment, which it sounds like was a part of your childhood as well, uh, really latch onto it. And that becomes your career path. Like I could have seen another version of Mike Goodwin's career that was independent school advancement leadership, but ultimately you made the move um, to higher education and it had to be a com- completely different environment going from a, you know, small tight knit community in Sammamish to, you know, Pullman, Washington. So tell, tell me about the move to Washington state. What led you to do that? <laughs> well, mostly Connie Kravis and Stan Schmidt, but um, you know, cause I, I'd met them through case and, and they, uh, they were, you know, sort of notorious for recruiting people. And I got on their radar, radar somehow. And so we started to talk and they said, Hey, why don't you come over and join us? We have this director of gift planning uh, position coming up, which is another example of how you, you could move in those days. Cause I was certainly not a seasoned director of gift planning. This sort of thing would never happen today, but it took probably six months to make that decision. Cause as you say, it was hard to the, those independent school communities are very close. You learn it a lot. You're much closer to the students and the action, so to speak, than uh, when you move to a big research university like WSU. But then there's other things at a place like WSU that sort of counteract that and benefit you. So it's a tough well, decision. And Connie Stan did a great job of, of selling it. Well, I feel like we I have been sold on Washington State for uh, the last several years because one of my colleagues, Kevin Massimino, Mm-hmm. Uh, was the student body vice president there no and yeah. then served on the board of regents and oh. has waved old crimson countless times and uh, <laughs> is an absolute fanatic and deserves a shout out for sure. So I feel like while, you know, my Brown affiliation gets a lot of credit, you know, in the ever true story, Washington state is high on that list. Um, as, as I think about institutions that uh, have meant a lot to, to my teammates Um Tell me about some of those early days, you know, after you made that move, just getting on the road, meeting donors, you know, selling a, maybe a new mission, right? I mean, a mission that you didn't necessarily have a personal connection to, um, you know, somebody else's product, if you will, but it sounds like Connie and team recruiting you, you know, had you pretty fired up out of the gates. I mean, what, what stands out about some of those early donor visits? Gosh, there was a lot to learn. I mean, they threw me right into it. I think within the first few days of be, like being what, on, huh? actually take me right back to like what did yeah. they give you? Like when we think about you know equipping someone for success, what did you actually get? <laughs> well, they threw me right into it. So I think you know I, I went over thinking, well, they know I don't know a lot about gift planning, so they're going to give me some time to study up and learn on this before I I do anything, and so. I'd been there about two days and Connie walked down and she, you know, she dropped into my office and said, we got reunion coming up this weekend. And here's three or four people that have contacted us about wanting to do planned gifts. So God, I was up till like midnight for three days in a row studying up on gift annuities and the rest so I could meet with these people and have a reasonable conversation with them. But it was just 
you know, that experience of getting right into it was really, really great. Cause I, I think, and then, you know, there were the courses that you went to the Bob Sharps and so forth. Uh, but it was just the, um, the immediacy of the experience and being able to get right after it. And I, I think I was on a call with the president, Sam Smith, within two day, two weeks of being on the job. And I was like, I, Sam's great to run into, very easy to work with. But, you know, I never worked with the university president before. And I was like scared to death as to what this experience would be like. But it was great. You know, the, the donors loved OS, WSU. It was clear that this would be an easy product product to sell that people had had a great experience at Washington State University. And in that case, that was long enough ago, again, not to date myself, but that a lot of the people that you worked with in gift planning had come through the Great Depression. And so their experiences getting through college were pretty remarkable to share where they were, you know, kind of snitching vegetables from a farmer's field to eat and that kind of a thing. And, and had gone on to have great wealth in their lives, but now they just wanted to share and give that back. So it was, um, it was easy to make the transition and to see, again, the impact of the transformative impact that education has on lives and society. Any of those early planned gift conversations stand out or, or maybe there were moments when you started to realize, hey, this, I love this. I mean, this, I love this work. It could really be yeah, yeah. a longer term path for me. <laughs> well, I mean, they were all good. Um, it's a, you know, another good question, but one that I was thinking about getting ready for this call was there, I, there was a, 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 an older gentleman who lived in a very remote corner of Northeast Washington. I don't know if you've ever been up there. It's beautiful territory. It's, you know, probably two and a half hour, three hour drive from Pullman. So I went up there, met with him, you know, started to walk through what would happen with the gift annuity, I think was the product and thinking I would go back to the office and write a proposal and send it to him. And he said, wait a minute, I, I'm going to go up, I need to go upstairs for something. And he came back down and he had $800,000 in negotiable securities that he handed to me. And these, you know, I could have gone to Mexico with these. I mean, they're probably worth two or $3 million at least today. And it was just such, uh, I was scared to death driving back that, you know, I needed an armored vehicle or something to, to be with me, but it was just such an experience and what the power of the brand of WSU was and the trust that people put in, in knowing that I was an employee of WSU, that this guy would put that kind of trust in me. And there were, you know, I could probably share many other stories like that, but it was just, um, you know, it, higher education really had a powerful impact on people and they, they really trusted and believed in it. So essentially somebody gave you $800,000 of cash. Essentially. Yeah. I could have, I could have gone to Mexico. If anybody listening has received more than 800,000 in cash, uh, direct from a donor, um, please share in our anonymous tip line, but, uh, no, that, um, that is memorable, Mike, for sure. And I, you know, I look, you've already brought it up, right. You've talked about the case mission. You're talking about the impact of education in a post-depression world. And, uh, you know, we got plenty of challenges, out there today, but I feel like um, as a sector, you know, there there is a lot of negativity around student loans, and I've talked about this before, student loans or the cost of tuition, um, and it seems like that really drowns out these amazing transformational life-changing stories that you're describing hearing about in the early 80s um, to the same ones that we hear about today, you know, to the way that my life was changed by higher education, um, and it just seems like 
There are so many more of those amazing stories that go untold at the expense of the headline about tuition or student loans. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's been a real change that we've seen over the last many, many years. And it's, some, it's something our sector probably needs to take seriously. I know there's efforts at CASE. Uh, you, probably, you heard about this at the AGB conference, I think. Sue Cunningham talked about it. And, uh, and there was some conversation about it. But it, 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 I think it's a beginning, but prob probably not everything that we need in terms of sort of reversing the perceptions of our sector that are out there right now. Because I think, as you point out, the, when you meet with students, and we, we were at a student gathering here last night in Corvallis, and you, you talk to them and you talk about their individual stories, they're just remarkable. And, and the things that you and I experienced are still happening. And we just, you know, we, we need to make sure people know that. But what I would expect, Mike, is that when you go to that student event, all <laughs> they're doing is complaining about tuition and loans. Like that is the narrative out there right now that there's, yeah, it's almost like impossible that you would go to a student event where the students are like deeply gratitude, you know, deeply grateful for the opportunity. Well, there, there is that for sure, Brent, but this thing we went to last night, maybe was a little different. It was a uh, scholarship recipient. So they, yeah. you know, they, but, and they were graduate students too. Mm -hmm. It's part of a, a program. My wife and I have become involved in called ARCs which you may be familiar with as achievement rewards for uh, something college scholars or something, but it's for graduate students to help them with their, with their programs. And um, they're just, you know, they're, they're so fresh in their thinking. And so deeply you, you ask them about their research pro projects or what they're focusing on. And it's just, it's an education to listen to what they talk about. We were talking last night to a guy who's working in, micro uh, nuclear reactors that could be a power source for the future. And, you know, just lots of things like that, that just really make you believe in, in what you're doing here. So love it. Yeah. Love it. Love it. And it's, it's gotta be, uh, you know, very rewarding uh, to be the donor as well, right. To experience philanthropy on that side of the table um, and stewardship and, you know, events like last night. It's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it really, yeah. being on the other side helps you a lot. I mean, when I got, and I, I'd say the same thing with Case, and I'm now chair of a board of Medical Teams International, and it's based out of Oregon. And when you're on that side of it, you get, a, it's a whole different way of seeing the industries that we're involved in and sort of understanding then when you're the staff person, how you, you know, how, what, what your volunteer leadership needs. So it's been great. So it's the early 90s. You grew up in the Northwest. You went California dreaming. You are now in, in Pullman. You're having a lot of success. You're sharing Case District 8. You are all in in the Pacific Northwest. And then, of course, it makes sense to move to Washington, D.C. and take a role at Georgetown. Not exactly what I saw coming. What led to that? Yeah, that was. I get a lot of questions about that, you know, and a lot uh, frequently, especially when I got them while we were living in DC, it was like, this must've been really a hard move to make to come from, you know, a place like Pullman to Washington, DC. It was actually a lot harder to go from Seattle to Pullman than it was to go from Pullman to DC. But that was, a, I mean, that was a recruitment. Um, it, uh, I have a lot of Jesuit background, as you know, with USF and a, going to a Jesuit high school, my wife does too. So we were pretty familiar with the product and what we would entail there. And 
uh, you know, great university, obviously, great city to live in. And uh, it, we, sort, we sort of fell in love with the place. And when you walk on that campus, it's so impressive. Uh, and I, I'm sure you've been there a time or two, but so, so that plus the VP there was just great. And, you know, you think we talk, were talking about mentors at some point, but Kathy Jones, who uh, had been at UC Irvine and then went, you know, like a year before I got there, came back to Georgetown, great sense of humor, really an effective leader and manager. And I just, I learned a ton working with Kathy and, and had a lot of fun doing it. So and this, the, the agreement was that if things worked out, I'd, you know, she didn't want to work forever as vice president and that she would set me up to kind of, uh, if things went well, move on to succeed her, which in, in, that's essentially what happened. Well, along the way, I know that you, you started, uh, collaborating with the dream team that was uh, Georgetown Advancement at that time. And at least um, I know Matthew Lambert was uh, somewhere on the yeah, chart yeah. at that point. And I posted Matthew on the Rays podcast. And, uh, you know, I know you all built some pretty, pretty innovative things uh, there as well. Yeah, I think Matthew was fresh out of Ohio State when he was at Georgetown. So it, it was great to have him on board. And man, did he, he had a lot to the program. Uh, Joe Kender, who uh, went on to Lehigh, and I think he's at St. Joseph's now. Uh, Sean Scoville, of course, who's running the program here at Oregon State. Kevin Heaney, who's running the program at Princeton after a, a t- spending, t- spending some time here at Oregon State. I could go on and on. Jeff Comfort, who's been a leader nationally in gift planning. It's just been a, that was a great crew to work with. Uh, and Kathy was great, you know, kind of giving me the freedom or us the freedom to recruit and, and just go out and try to bring some, some people with real creativity, talent, and vision into the program. Can I ask during um, your time at Georgetown, so as a point of reference for our listeners, Mike joined Georgetown in 1994, and he left in 2004. And so when you joined, I'm going to guess that you didn't get an email address on your first day. <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess that there were very limited technologies at your disposal, at your team's disposal in the mid-90s. I bet that changed a lot by the time you left in 2004. And there were probably some awkward periods in between where questions were asked like, is it okay to email a donor? You know, can we email a proposal? Right. Uh, And I'm just curious if you think about that being the core kind of dot-com 1.0 boom, um, what your perspective was, or if you recall any moments when you, you started to see technology playing a, a bigger role, or, or maybe it, it didn't matter that much. No, it, it really transformed a lot just during that short tenure. I mean, it, you, you may have heard this story before, but I think uh, Grinswalk Glare had been working in the environment before I got there. And they were, you know, they were doing some good stuff. I asked, and some of it involved technology, but I asked for, um, you know, like the first week I got there, one of the things I wanted to see was a list of major donors thinking that I could get an Excel spreadsheet or I, I don't know, something along those lines, electronic, that would be pretty easy to pull up. So this takes like three weeks or four weeks. And when I finally get it, it's like a big box with all these printouts that have come off that old type of printer that had the, you know, the edges and all of that. And it was like, Oh God, this is going to be, 
So at Washington State, we were more advanced than that by, by some degree. So, um, you know, it's just a case of Georgetown having some legacy systems, now uh, acknowledging that they needed to change that, now going through the painful process of upgrading it to, I forget which one we were using, but we were in the process of doing that. And email, yeah, I mean, it was, um, email was a much more formal thing back then. I mean, you know how today you, you know, you send texts and you do all of that and maybe your spelling isn't always as good. Siri might catch it, but she doesn't always. Uh, <laughs> but then if, if you made a mistake in an email in those days, to a faculty member, especially, you'd get a, a, a nasty gram about how can you represent us when you're, you know, you just sent me this email and there's two misspellings in it. And I said, dude, I'm just trying to, this is a new form of communication, but right. there was a lot of that sort of evolution that you had to go through. But, you know, starting by, by 2004, so when I left to come out here, it was, you know, the, the momentum was clearly there and it was clear that we had to, to push ahead as an, in, as a, as an industry. Mike, I actually love the fact that in spite of the lack of technology, you all improved results during your time at Georgetown. And there's at least one bullet point in your, your resume, and I, I won't hold you to the exact mm -hmm. data, but, but where the productivity of major gift officers grew from $800,000 to $3 million, okay? Those numbers aside, mm -hmm. um, it wasn't through tech. You didn't have technology to lean on. And so in the absence of technology being some sort of crazy differentiator, what were the things that you did that helped create that before and after? Um, if it wasn't the whiz bang, you know, CRM. Yeah, it, it was, I mean, um, it wasn't, it was bang CM, CRM. You know how you can sit down today and have a firm like uh, any one of the major consulting firms will go through your portfolios and t tell you, which, how well your gift officers are doing in terms of matching up with the top prospect base. So we didn't, and then you do some reassignment based on that. We didn't have any ability to do that sort of thing. So you had to kind of work with what was there in front of you. But I think a lot of what I learned during real estate and managing a portfolio there was applicable here. So, and also at Washington State. So you just sat down. I spent a lot of time working individually with development officers and just, you know, going through trying to find out where, where the, where the log jams were, what can we do to break through those log jams, just doing a lot of coaching and encouragement. And then um, Kathy was really good about, uh, I, I, the primary, one of the, I learned a lot from Kathy, but one of the primary things was and when you have performance issues, you have to manage those performance issues because if you don't manage the performance issues, it sends a message to the rest of the organization. They're just not serious about uh, the discipline of the organization. So we, we did that in a few cases, which enabled us an opportunity to bring some different people in, different skill sets, and also it, you might say motivated the people that were, uh, were still in the organization. So it's that, that kind of thing, I think. What's an example of the kind of, I don't know, one, two, three log jams that you saw then or that you might expect to see today holding us back because you know the donor population is the donor population people are who they are in their portfolios but there it sounds like our specific you know roadblocks yeah. that are preventing development officers from breaking through and building the relationship and securing the revenue 
Well, I think it goes to, if I could give a plug to another company that does work in this field, Advancement Resources, I think does a great job of training development officers around the very issue that you're, you're talking about. And, and uh, a lot, in a lot of occasions, it would come back to not re- really co- having conversations with the donors, or you would understand what the donor's motivation was and what might be preventing them from making the, the gift. So really improving our skill set around that. I, and I think that was pretty key to the conversations, conversations we had at Georgetown. And I was like, okay, what's holding you up? Why is the donor not, not doing this? What are they trying to accomplish? Uh, that kind of thing. So, uh, so I think that's been a, a real uh, change is the so increasing sophistication in the training and the ability that our advancement officers have as they go out to, uh, to meet with donors and have these kinds of conversations. But still, it's not always perfect and we're not always perfect and we're not always great listeners. So those log jams still occur. Yeah. And um, I don't know the origins of the opportunity at Oregon State, mm-hmm. but you know, tell me more about what, what led you to, uh, to head back to the Northwest. Well, it was kind of a family decision. Uh, you know, the campaign was done at Georgetown. It wasn't clear when the next campaign would be. Uh, you, know, you know, so we weren't we we're totally sure whether we wanted to stay there. Our kids had all gotten degrees at Georgetown, so we'd kind of gone through that that process, and we're we'll be forever grateful to Georgetown for that because they just got great educations there, uh, including one who got a medical degree from Georgetown, or two actually got medical degrees from Georgetown. So um, it was it was more, you know, Sheila's family's in the Bay Area, mine is in the Seattle area. We wanted to get back to a major research university on the West Coast that would allow us more proximity to our families. So Oregon State was the one that was open at that point, went out and, uh, you know, wasn't quite sure what would happen or how it would go. But I met Ed Ray, who's the president I worked for until he retired about a year ago. Uh, you know, he came out here from, as a provost from Ohio State. You've met him, I think, haven't you, Brent, when you've been out here? Great guy, uh, very, very down to earth, occasionally a little crusty in his language. Uh, but just, you know, you couldn't work for a more supportive uh, person as far as uh, somebody who wanted to lead advancement and be a part of advancement. So that was really a big part of the attraction. Plus, it's a great place to live. It is a, a, a great um if you haven't been to that part of the country, if you haven't been to Corvallis, it's a, it's a, just a great college town. Um, I grew up in Iowa. Uh, it reminds me of um, Ames, Iowa, a little bit, mm. uh, where Iowa State University is, except, uh, no offense to my farmer friends, but much better scenery. And yeah, we've got the farms. easy drive to the ocean and the mountains yeah. and skiing. And there is the wine tasting that's pretty good these days, too. So, yeah. Yeah. So when you got there, I, I know that at that time, Oregon State was raising roughly 30, 40 million a year. And along the way, as part of your, your campaign, um, you blasted through that $100 million threshold. Was that one of those, I don't know, big, hairy, audacious goals? Or was there like, it's, it's just a number, but it's a nice round number that not a lot of folks get to... Uh, get to shoot for in the sector was that or maybe the broader campaign milestone being at that billion dollar level i mean how important were just the 
the round numbers um, in yeah. rallying the team um, towards the goals? Well, I was fortunate, I think, that I'd been at, at uh, Washington State, which is a pretty similar place in terms of their graduate population and the, the academic programs that they have. So I could look through what the colleges and athletics were raising here and see that there was a lot of room compared to Washington State for improvement. And then kind of scanning through the, you know, what was available in terms of donors, you could see that there were some opportunities there too. So it's like, but it's, uh, you know, anytime you have a couple hundred thousand people on your list of friends, there's going to be some folks, as you well know, that have capacity on that list. So it's, um, you know, I think one of the Again, talking about mentors, Martin Grenzebach has been a great mentor in some respects. And one of his mantras is you just, when you go into a situation like that, you just work the process. And so we just work the process of discovery and, and visits and getting out to see people and uh, had a confidence that if we did that, we would be successful. And it turned out to, to be true. I think they're up to 150, 160, 170 million or something like that now. So Sean, shout out to Sean. He's doing a great job. When you're working with the sheer numbers that you were working with then mm -hmm. um, and really embarking upon what my understanding was, uh, you know, a heavily discovery oriented um, campaign, uh, there had to be some unexpected gifts or you know, donors that maybe came out of the woodwork that were just totally off the radar. Um, you know, did, did, does anything stand out in that regard or was it mostly, um, you know, working with the known set of supporters and getting them to stretch further? No, there, there were a lot of those kind of unknown gifts, surprises, you might say. Uh, you know, it's interesting. A couple of the biggest were in the College of Veterinary Medicine uh, people, as you know, love their animals. And one came early on and it was, it was kind of a fun gift because among other things, we became the owners of a ferry boat company, which turned out, turned out to be worth $6 million or so. But we, we actually, these, uh, are, these are the stories our audience really wants, Mike. So tell <laughs> me about other strange gifts or the, the ferry boat, uh, ownership, how that works. Well, some of them may, if they've gone from the state of Washington to Canada, they may have been on this ferry boat. It crosses from Port Angeles to Victoria. And uh, so, you know, it's like uh, a running enterprise. We uh, ended up retaining the crew and, and so forth to operate for us. And, you know, we just, once a quarter, our, our CFO was up uh, meeting with the board of the ferry boat company, but eventually we sold that. Another gift, this is, uh, I think, a good lesson. This, of, uh, this might be the first time, though, that I've heard on this podcast that somebody <laughs> that you actually just owned a company for a while. I mean, it's not exactly like, I mean, that's like private equity meets running a foundation. Yeah, no, we were sorely, we had a similar situation at Washington State where there's a, a famous seafood company you may have gone to when you're in Seattle called Ivers, uh, you know, down in the waterfront, famous for chowder and that kind of thing. And he, Ivor, left that company to uh, Washington State in his will. So I got to see uh, how Stan and Schmidt, especially, who was kind of the business genius, uh, operated that and dealt with that. And we had the same CFO that we'd had at Washington State who'd been through that whole process. I recruited him over to Oregon State. So it's really fun to be able to, to sort of duplicate that experience. 
But then the other, you know, a really interesting, I think, telling story is um, it was a $50 million gift to the College of Veterinary Medicine. And this was someone who lived in Southern California you know, that was on the database. And we could see that uh, he had capacity at least to make a million dollar gift. Uh, so people kept going down and, you know, kind of pitching their programs. He had multiple interests. Would you give us a million dollars for the campaign? And he kept saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm interested in. And I'm interested in animals. So finally, um, you know, after spending a lot of time with him, Jeff Comfort took the head of veterinary medicine down there and they just melded, you know, the, the, it was a great meeting and it was, you know, pretty quickly that they moved into conversations after that about his estate and how that might be directed to support the college. And it ended up being a $50 million gift to name the college. So it's just, you know, again, it gets back to that point we were talking about earlier of really, we often go in with our objectives of I need to close a gift for the campaign. But if you really listen, which Jeff is really great at, you discern what people are, are uh, all about basically. Mike, can I ask in that case, yeah. why, why 50? Why not 40? Why not 60? I mean, how do you land when you're talking about such stratospheric numbers? Mm. You still got to land on a specific number. Uh, you know, it's a little easier back in your real estate days where this is the house, this is what it's listed for. Do you want to come in above or below? We can negotiate on the margin, yeah, yeah. but going from a whole bunch of, will you give a million? No, I won't. <laughs> that doesn't strike me. But if you get the pitch right, I'll give 50. I mean, that's that's crazy. Yeah, well, we went into, uh, Jeff went into a lot of exploration of what his assets were. And it was partially, you know, uh, liquid assets, stocks and the like, but partially quite a bit of real estate, which led to a lot of interesting exploration in terms of was it valued correctly? And would we really be able to get what we thought we could get from it when we obtained it? But yeah, it just, he, he didn't have children, family. He didn't have anything else he wanted to do with his money. And he just really locked onto this idea, idea of supporting animals. And it just, it grew, you know, pretty quickly from, from that to the, vi the vision of 50 million. I am remembering a dinner that I had in Seattle at one point yeah. at a conference with one of your former colleagues. And I cannot for the life of me remember her name nor track her down in the background here on LinkedIn. But I do know that she was a development officer hmm. for the veterinarian school, oh, uh, for the vet school. And we were just going around the table asking about, I don't know, unique experiences or at, we asked everybody as an icebreaker to sort of share the craziest gift that they had been a part of. And what I did not appreciate until that moment, and now I have to ask you the same question is, how often vet school fundraisers are in barns raising money, which makes total sense. But she was referring to a time specifically when I think she helped a prospect like deliver a sheep or something like that. And it was just... Uh, <laughs> Not exactly. I don't know about the, that one. Yeah. You know, not exactly the ivory tower, you, you know, sitting across the table, the vision that you might think of. So, you know, when you think about your own road warrior moments, anything stand out in, in just, I don't know, unique settings? I mean, I guess being on a ferry boat certainly is one of them. Well, no sheep stories, but, you know, I, I mean, that's a great part of, about a land grant university is that you have all these fascinating programs, you know, like that or engineering where you can 
see a lot of things or agriculture. And I, the first, uh, you know, few weeks or so I was on the job at uh, Washington State, I think the College of Ag guy had me pegged as a city slicker. So he wanted to take me out to, uh, to meet with some of his donors who were on the most remote wheat farm in the Palouse that I think I've, I've ever seen. And we drove for 50 miles and there was nothing but wheat fields around there. But it was uh, put on your jeans, put on your boots, you know, uh, take off your tie, go in there and rely. And it's just, that's what's great about a land grant university is you can do everything from that to visiting uh, very successful financial or legal people down in, in downtown Seattle. It's just a great variety of, but no sheep, unfortunately. I love it. I love it. Um, well, I, uh, I will try to track her down later and, and, and apologize, but it was one that stood out, uh, <laughs> that stood out for me. Tell me a little bit about the team. You, you built a, a very strong team that has um, lasted at Oregon State. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, I know you've retired a couple of years ago, but I think at a time when it seems like every you know, EAB or consulting report is about turnover, uh, you, you were able to recruit a, a very strong team that has been, um, has been consistent. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think what we wanted to, uh, portray was a, a place where, where there would be consistency, uh, where, where you could grow your career, where you'd have a chance to possibly move up within our organization, or if not, you'd be able to, to go somewhere else and do great things because look at what Kevin Heaney did. Look what, you know, that, that type of thing. So we wanted to create that sense. I think stability was a big part of it. I think the relationship that Ed Ray and I had was really a big part of it and the board, because we, we were very much in lockstep and people could, to, could pick up on that. Cause you go into, I think regrettably some places and you find that that's not the case. And it, it was probably the, the best thing I could hear when I do an exit interview with somebody who'd been interviewing at the place was, you know, tell me about what, what you heard while you were visiting with our folks. And uh, pretty often people would say they were really surprised because they, they heard pretty much different versions of the same story each time they met with somebody. It wasn't, you know, um, it, it, we really should be doing this and we're doing that. Uh, you know, it's more of a consistent buy-in to the program. And I think when people pull together and they're working for the same objective, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's never perfect, but it really creates a, a wonderful environment to work in. I'd be remiss if I didn't give um, Mark Koenig a shout out, who's been a uh, yeah. longstanding partner of ours and yours. Um, he now serves as chief innovation officer at the Oregon State <laughs> uh, University Foundation. And I would just sort of love your perspective on, you know, not only Mark, but just the fact that you um, were willing to advocate to your board um, mm -hmm. and to dedicate space in your organization to really support innovation, um, but doing so in a way that was, I think, pragmatic and, you know, focused on the task at hand, which is we got to raise the money. But, you know, you, you, it just always felt like you were able to balance making some longer term bets while not sacrificing the short term, you know, campaign specific objectives. And I know that, you know, empowering Mark has been a big part of that. Yeah, well, as you know, Mark is a little bit of a genius in this in this area. I mean, he's constantly 
uh, sort of dissatisfied with what's going on now and kind of looking for the next thing that you need to do has a real uh, eye for technology and what's what's sort of on the future. And we, um, you know, I, I, I feel like as a profession, we've done a really good job of prioritizing major gift work and investing in that. But as you pointed out to us in the presentation you did, Brent, the, there, we're leaving a lot of money on the table because we're working with the very top of the pyramid and doing that. And there, there's a pretty good layer right beneath that that we're not we're not uh, getting to and we're not discovering and we're never going to have the it's it's pretty clear to me that we're never as a maybe a, a university or two will have the money to do this but for most of us we're not going to have the money to do the, that the way we do major gift work so how do we do that and how do we apply technology how do we apply artificial intelligence and uh, i think the uh, pandemic sort of accelerated some of yeah. the opportunity to do that remotely but I'm not sure we still, I'd like to get your perspective on that. I'm not sure we probably still totally solve that space, but there's more, a lot more work to be done in there to figure out how to do that. But Yeah, I mean, look, uh, for anybody listening, if you've had any exposure to the, the growth of the DxO uh, program at Evertrue and beyond in the sector, um, I would consider Mike sort of the godfather of that program and that uh, we went to him with... Um, uh, what began as a blank PowerPoint presentation and in collaboration with Mark Koenig tried to put some numbers behind it. But what we found was that um, in spite of the fact that the Oregon State University Foundation was covering, you know, around 2% of prospects in a personalized way, uh, $100 million a year plus was being raised. And we believe then and believe now that scaling that personalized one-to-one -one engagement deeper into the giving pyramid, leveraging uh, technology, but not leaning on it too much because ultimately it's still the human element that we know can be the difference maker. It was a difference maker for Mike going to USF or not. Uh, and it was the difference maker for the vet school getting named or not. And uh, we believe that, uh, you know, even prior to the pandemic, um, these shifts around remote engagement were, uh, were, were becoming clear. Um, and so we actually partnered with Oregon State University in the summer of 2019, um, just as Mike was entering um, his last year uh, in leadership and in partnership with Mike and Sean Scoville and Mark Koenig, we coincidentally stood up the country's first uh, DxO program uh, about a minute before the pandemic. Um, and then we went from what was a, you know, we think a good idea pre-pandemic um, to something that has become mission critical because we went from roughly 10 million people using Zoom in uh, December of 2019 to over 300 million by April of 2020. We don't think uh, there has ever been a technology adoption that was as rapid as the adoption of video communication, like the one that Mike and I are using to record this podcast right now. So um, I actually, I, I don't know where the program would be, Mike, if it weren't for the pandemic, because it went from, wait, you want to meet over Zoom? Mm -hmm. To, yeah, of course, let's meet over Zoom. Yeah. Just and I think that that yeah. dynamic uh, has, you know, transformed 
the entire fundraising experience. And I, you know, I spoke with Fred Van Sickle, who was talking about negotiating a hundred million dollar gift over Zoom. You know, who mm-hmm. could have possibly imagined that in 2019 as we were shaping this program? Yeah, it was just it was unimaginable at that point. So, but it's it's been transformative. But I, I think, uh, and I'm not in it as much as I used to be, but I think there's probably still opportunity to to dig deeper, use AI oh, yeah. more, uh, et cetera. So look forward Absolutely. to seeing it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, we are uh, coming up on time, but I would love your perspective on uh, on one topic as it relates to, to talent. You know, we've got a lot of folks listening to this podcast. You know, you wouldn't be listening if you didn't really care. You know, if you didn't want to get a window into Mike's career or if you didn't want him as a fundraising professional. Uh, and when you think about the best people that you've worked with, the most effective uh, philanthropic professionals, Mike, were there common characteristics that stand out? Um, you know, was it about uh, some sort of innate skill, you know, mission, drive? I mean, what are the things that stand out when you reflect on the best people you worked with in your career? Yeah, it's a little all over the place because there have been so many good people, but certainly I'd start with what you just said, which is a real commitment to the mission uh, and a real belief and passion in higher education. I mean, you just, you have to have that and then you bring your talents to bear on that. I think listening and really being able to understand people and as we've talked about, know where they're at, know what's important to them, know what's going to be motivational to them. I think, um, you know, if, if you aspire to the management side of this, I think really understanding, you know, who you are and what your skills and strengths are uh, as a manager. Are you somebody who's going to be more out there uh, visiting with the prospects, visiting with the donors, the board members, all of that, while somebody else, you know, you team with the number two that runs the shop, are you going to be more internal and have somebody, you know, so how do you, how do you function in that role? What do you need to be successful in that role? I've seen, uh, failures related to not totally understanding how to do that. So I, I think those kinds of things, um, it, you know, and really an, an ability to work effectively and well with academic colleagues is, of course, pretty critical to it as well. Well said, Mike. Um, how you keeping busy today? Favorite, uh, I don't know, any new hobbies uh, that you've picked up in the last couple of years? Uh, well, I... I, I Played a lot of golf right after I retired, and I got worse as the more I played, the worse I got. So I figured that wasn't it. But we're we're spending a lot of time in Hawaii, uh, which we both enjoy very much. And I've uh, done some occasional consulting here and there for friends, uh, usually uh, less on the campaign side or the fundraising side, but more on the board governance side. How do you work with the board? How do you develop a board? what's their role during a campaign, that kind of thing. Um, as you know, I've become a senior fellow of AGB and do a little work occasionally with them, which is great, great way to stay connected with a great organization. Uh, and then this uh, thing I've got with Medical Teams International, which is sort of a uh, smaller, in some ways smaller version of uh, what Doctors Without Borders, but does sort of similar kinds of work. We have a, a, a huge, a, a growing presence over in, in uh, Poland and Moldova regarding the Ukrainian crisis and big presence in Africa and Bangladesh and areas like that. So, so that's been really fascinating to be a part of that and kind of learn more about a totally different, but totally fascinating sector. So yeah, it's keeping me out of trouble. 
Mike, thank you so much for your um, just support and, and willingness over the years. I mean, we've been uh, yeah shaping this this ball of clay that is ever true, and I feel like you've had a outsized impact in um, giving us you know a chance. Uh, and I'm I'm genuinely grateful to you for that. If there's ever anything we can do to help out with any of those pursuits, please let us know. And I guess I would ask in closing if folks want to get in touch with you. Uh, I know you're um, on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. Is there another way to to reach out? Uh, LinkedIn's probably as good as any. So I probably see that every day. So uh, that would probably be the best way to do it. Love it. Yeah. Uh, well, Mike, thank you for your thank for you, your time Brad. It's great. I appreciate it. Yeah. I wish you all the best in what you're trying to do. Well, I'll count on seeing you at the. Um, at the AGB conference next year, that's become just one of our really foundational yeah. conferences. And in fact, uh, the first time we ever went was because Mark Koenig uh, Did he get you to, uh, invited yeah. us to or inspired us to yeah. sponsor or whatever it may have been. But it was, uh, it's been really fun to be able to, to see you regularly. And now that the world's, uh, well, in some ways, at least getting back to normal, hopefully we'll, we'll count on seeing you again next January. It's so great to be starting back that direction, isn't it? No, yeah. Early. It really yeah. is. This well, is with that, so yeah, yeah, you know, hey, folks listening, uh, connect with Mike. Let him know that you heard about him um, on the podcast, and um, I hope you enjoyed uh, this perspective. As Mike has as much experience as anybody, we're really grateful for your your willingness to share, Mike. No, it's been, uh, been fun. Thank you, Brent. With that, I'm going to sign off with uh, Mike Goodwin, comma retired. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Talk to you, sir. Bye-bye.